Thank you, Hugh. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to page 1173. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. 1173, Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first 14 verses of this amazing letter. And then next week, uh, Craig will finish off the chapter. And whenever Craig or myself are up preaching here in St. Pete's, we're going to be looking through the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, a magnificent letter. So keep it open there in Ephesians chapter 1. In a moment, we're going to look at this chapter. But first of all, I want you all to, to try and imagine what it would be like to be in the church of Ephesus. Uh, Now, we don't have to crack open our history books to figure out what that would be like because in Acts chapter 19 in the Bible, we know exactly what life in Ephesus was like. Uh, You don't need to turn there, but let me just tell you what you would see in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that was steeped in pagan worship. Uh, The whole city's identity was rooted upon worship to a particular Greek goddess, the, the goddess Artemis. In fact, in the middle of the city, there was a huge temple that was dedicated to the worship of Artemis. And people would come from all over the world, from all over the Roman Empire, to the city of Ephesus to worship at this temple. So imagine in your your mind's eye uh, the city of Edinburgh and the the castle that's seated on top of the, the hill right in the middle of Edinburgh. And there's, but instead of a castle, there's a, a giant big Greco-Roman temple. And think of Edinburgh during the festival time. I don't know if you've ever been there when the festival's on. It's horrible. But there's just, but the good thing about it is that there's people from all over the world that come to the city during that time. That's what Ephesus would have been like. People from all over coming to worship at the temple of Artemis. And in this great big city, famous for its pagan worship, you had the tiny little Ephesian church. Uh, Many of the members of this church actually in in Ephesus, many of them, if not all of them, were involved at one time in pagan worship themselves, uh, were involved in worship in in Artemis. In fact, in Acts 19, we read that, that when they came to give their lives to Jesus, one of the first things they did was they gathered kind of all their occult books and all their spiritual books together and they burned them. So in many ways, it was a fairly unusual church. And yet in many ways, it was a church that's very similar to us today. You can imagine how, how it would feel to be in the Ephesian church. They would have felt small. They would have felt weak. They would have felt like such cultural outsiders. They would have felt as if they were on the periphery of society. And not only that, they were a church that faced real conflict. People saw the Christians in Ephesus as a threat. In fact, one guy in Acts 19 who, who set up a business selling little statues of Artemis uh, for all the tourists that came to the city was so worried that this new movement, this new church would threaten his business that he incites this riot against them. And it's not just physical opposition. They're, they're a church that's just come out of kind of occult practices Um, So they faced spiritual opposition. They they were worried about um, the devil. They were worried about demons. And so Paul writes this letter to this small church facing conflict. 
And this is why he writes it. Three big purposes, I think, uh, that Paul has in mind as he writes to this church. To encourage, to exhort, and to equip. Paul wants to encourage this church by reminding them of who they are in Christ. He wants to exhort them to, to live distinctively in light of who they are in Christ. And he wants to equip them to deal with the inevitable conflict that comes from being in Christ. Encourage, exhort, and equip. That is what Paul wants to do. Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians are mind-blowing. And they are written to encourage the church. That, uh, uh, what Paul does for us in these three chapters is paint the most beautiful portrait of what God's people are actually like. In fact, I've called the, the sermon tonight God's masterpiece. That is what God's church is. It's his masterpiece. So as we look at the opening section of this letter, I hope that if you're here tonight, if you are a Christian who, who sometimes feels lost or weak or who, who, who's maybe even feeling the pressure of, of conflict or doubt, that you will be encouraged tonight as we study who we really are in God's eyes. And if you don't follow Jesus, I, I, hope, I hope tonight you'll see that, that this is what's being offered to you. This is why following Jesus is so great. So think of that church, and let's read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now that is an amazing statement. In the Greek, it's one massive long sentence. Um, Paul's Greek teacher must have had a minute's silence for punctuation after reading that. 
but you can see that he is just overflowing with joy and praise as he reflects on who the church is. So let me pray for God's help before we look at this great passage together. Father, thank you for what we read of here in Ephesians. Father, this is incredible. And in some ways, I'm just so inadequate to bring out the, the riches of this treasure. Father, as we just dip our toe into the blessings that we have, uh, the, the ocean of the blessings that we have in Christ, I pray that we would leave here tonight encouraged, we would leave here rejoicing, and that we would just praise your glory because you are so great. You have done so much for us. Father, may we see it tonight afresh and anew. Holy Spirit, bring these great truths to bear upon our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's opening statement to this small church, this apparently weak church in Ephesus, is a statement in which he shows them who they are. And as he, as he reflects on on who he is, as he sits down at his desk to write this letter to encourage the, the Ephesian church, there's only one way, I guess, in which he can really begin, and that is with praise. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Ephesians, I, I, just, I want you to join me in giving thanks and praise and honor to God our Father. I want to begin this letter by, by praising the greatness of our God. Why? Because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, right from the onset, we are presented with one of many staggering statements that, that Paul gives us. If you follow Jesus, that means that God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. There's not some Christians who are more blessed than others. There's no stages of Christianity. You don't, you don't advance up the ladder of Christianity. As soon as you come to follow Jesus, as soon as you ask for forgiveness, God gives you every spiritual blessing. God, God is not stingy. He doesn't hold back on you. Now, before we go and unpack, well, what on earth, what are these spiritual blessings? Just look at what Paul says here in verse 3 about where we get these blessings. In the heavenly realms. Now, what on earth does that mean? It's a really important phrase, I think, to understand, especially if you're going to read through the book of Ephesians, because Paul uses it quite a lot in this letter. Broadly speaking, the heavenly realms is a reference to the spiritual realities. So it's the spiritual realities, the, the invisible spiritual realities that lie behind the visible world. Um, it's not simply the, the future prospect of heaven because it's something that's happening to us now, but it's something that is um, behind the scenes, as it were, of this visible world. Every spiritual blessing and if we look at the spiritual realities of what is happening to us now, it's mind-blowing. What God has done for his church is incredible. So think of it like this. The, the church of Christ is kind of like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. It, you know, outwardly, it looks plain and not special and insignificant. 
But if you open the door behind the scenes, the cosmic workings are immense. And so what Paul's going to do now is is open the door of the TARDIS. He's going to peel back the curtain of the visible church to show the inner workings, the spiritual reality that lies behind what God has done in your life as a Christian. We have every blessing from God. Jesus does not hold anything back from his church. Well, what are these great blessings then that we have in the the heavenly realms? Three things. Firstly, we have been chosen by the Father for adoption. Secondly, we have been redeemed by Jesus for unity. And thirdly, we have been sealed with the Spirit for an inheritance. Chosen, redeemed, sealed. That's who we are. Let's, let's look at these three things uh, in detail. We're going to kind of, oh, there's so much in here um, that you could just spend ages chewing on one verse, but we're going to have a kind of helicopter view over these great blessings, uh, and hopefully you can reflect on them later. Firstly then, we have been chosen by the Father for adoption. Verse 4, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So what's the great blessing you can know tonight if you're a follower of Jesus? You can know that before the very foundations of this universe were created, God chose you. Before you were born, God knowing that you would rebel against him, knowing that you would hurt him, that you would sin against him, chose you to be presented as holy and blameless. He chose you. We did not choose him. It wasn't because something happened in your life that you came to follow Jesus. It wasn't because you were more disposed towards the Christian gospel. It wasn't because you were persuaded or that that the right people were just there at the right time. Those could all be contributing factors, but the root cause The root of it all was that before the heavens and the earth were created, God said, I want you to be in my kingdom. It's not about a decision we made. It's about a decision he made. And for some reason, Christians get really hung up on this, but it's clear, isn't it? It just says it here. God predestines those who will be in Jesus. And we get hung up because we ask questions like, well, what about those who he hasn't chosen? And, and those are good questions and we should wrestle through some of these concepts. Um, but, it, but it's almost the wrong approach to this here. Paul's not trying to uh, incite a theological debate. This is a statement of fact designed to encourage a church that looks small and feels marginalized. Don't you see, says Paul, God chose you. This is the most wonderfully liberating doctrine. It puts my salvation wholly in the hands of the the king and the creator of the universe and not upon me. It frees you from yourself to know that, that in eternity past, God looked upon me with all my failures and all my ways of mistreating him, that he looked upon me knowing that I would let him down, knowing that I deserve nothing but his judgment. And he said, I want him. I will give up the life of my son whom I love so that I can have him. 
You see, the question we ask off the back of that is not how, but why? Why would God choose me? Why would God choose us knowing what it would cost him? Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Why did God choose you? Brothers and sisters, it's because he loves you and he wants you to be his child. And he adopted you into his family not because you were lovely or because you were great, but for one simple reason, the praise of his glory and grace. God has made much of us, not because we're worth it, but because his glory is wonderful and he wants to display his glory and grace and he wants his glory to be praised. And when you think on what God has done for you, You just can't help but praise his grace. With all that's going on in your life right now, feeling that that it's hard to live as a Christian, or, or you may be just feeling so cold to the gospel right now, think on the fact that that the God of the universe chose you to be treated like his most beloved child. You see, I wonder if if I wonder, and I fall into this trap, if we just view salvation as being as if we were prisoners who have been let off a death sentence. And God God has rescued us in that way. I don't know if you've ever thought of salvation like that. But if that's the case, you'll kind of, you'll view God, you'll think maybe that God views you with a kind of, I don't know, indifference. That's not the gospel. We have been saved so that we could be adopted in love. We call God Father. That means that no matter how many times I muck up, God God will love us unconditionally. God will forgive us, just as you would love your own child. That means that he wants to treat us like Jesus. That means that, that we want to obey him, not as slaves driven by fear, but as, as children motivated by love. You have been adopted into the most secure and loving relationship possible. You know, the best thing that, thinking about this idea of adoption, the best thing I've ever read on it was by a guy called J.I. Packer in a book, Knowing God, a very well-known Christian book, excellent book. Um, And this is what um, Jim Packer says about adoption. God adopts us out of free love not because our character and record show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact they show the very opposite. We are not fit for a place in God's family. And the idea of exalting and loving us sinners as he loves and exalted the Lord Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? And yet, Packer writes, that and nothing less, that is what our adoption means. Adoption by its very nature is an act of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a child, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. 
Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. He need not have done anything about our sins, save punish us as we deserved. But he loved us so, he redeemed us, forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as our father. Paul's first brushstroke as he paints this magnificent portrait of God's masterpiece that is the church is breathtaking. And you see verse 5, he did so not begrudgingly, but out of the pleasure of his will. I love that. There's so many little details in here. Uh, It filled God with pleasure to do his will, to choose you and to adopt you into his family. So when you peel back the curtain of the church, we look behind the scenes of, of these broken, sinful people here in St. Peter's, you see children loved infinitely by the God of all the universe. It's just the first point. Secondly, we have been redeemed by Jesus for unity. Verse 6, Paul is soaring uh, just on the greatness of what God has done. He talks about Jesus as the one loved by God, and then he goes on to explain what we have in him. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, redemption, that's kind of an archaic word, but um, it would have, the Ephesians would have understood what that means. It meant basically to buy someone out of slavery, to pay a ransom. And so what Paul is saying is that, that without Jesus, we are all slaves. That's humanity. We are all slaves. There is no one who is truly free. And the thing that is enslaving us is our sin. We are not good people. Fundamentally, we are not good people. We ignore God. We live for ourselves. We are hell-bound to our own selfish desires, tied up in, in rebellion against our Maker. But Jesus has come to set us free. He has come to buy us out of our slavery. And what was the cost to set you and I free? What was the cost for the forgiveness of our sins, for our redemption. It was the most precious thing in the entire universe, his own blood. You see, as Jesus died on the cross, he faces God's anger for all the wrong that you and I have done and ever will do. He suffers the punishment. He faces the judgment so that we can be free from condemnation, free from judgment, free. See, it's not, it's incredible when you think about it. What, what's the most precious thing to God the Father? Was not the most precious thing to God the Father, his son, Jesus Christ? And is not the blood of his own son more precious than anything else in the universe? And yet he gives his son up to be beaten and humiliated and to be hung like a piece of meat on a crucifix so that you and I could be redeemed and have our sins forgiven. You and I who who have done nothing, we're not on a neutral plane with him. You and I who have done nothing but treat him with contempt. And how in the light of that simple truth, that gospel, could we ever think that there are moments in life where God does not love us? 
See, when you start to mull it over, it's true what Paul says, isn't it? He has lavished his grace upon us. Isn't that a great word? Lavish. You know, in my head, it's a word that's kind of describing being overly extravagant. In my head, I think of sticky toffee pudding. And you've got the chocolate sponge and, and you want to lavish the, the toffee sauce on it because it's the best bit. You want to be outrageously generous with it. That's what God's grace is like to his church. It's just outrageously generous. His undeserved favor, his kindness, his love, his goodness is just poured out on us. The purpose of of this, the purpose we see here of Christ's redemption was not simply my own personal freedom from sin. That is a wonderful thing. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. But the purpose was this. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now look at what Paul's saying. He's saying, Ephesians, you, you, you know, you know why God redeemed you, don't you? you? You know that the mystery of God's will that was hidden in ages past, isn't this amazing that, that God with all his wisdom and insight showed you what your purpose was? Think about that pagan culture that they lived in, full of abstract ideas and and spiritual mysticism. Think about our culture. No one really certain about anything. People have their perceptions, I guess, of what God would be like, and uh, but there's no real certainty. We're we're stumbling about in the dark. It's like we saw this morning. We are spiritually blind, trying to find meaning and purpose. But not if you're a Christian, says Paul. You know. Isn't it amazing that you know? You know what God's purpose is. In fact, verse 9, God had great pleasure in revealing it to you. He he loves the fact that you know his plan. And that plan, the meaning of your existence, the purpose of the universe, is that everything on heaven and earth will be united under the kingly rule of Jesus. He is the end of God's plan, not us. It's all about Jesus. And our purpose as a church is, is to be united together under Jesus. In fact, it's, Paul will go on to talk about the church being like a new humanity made up of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, united together as one. That's why in the New Testament, the, the one sin that seems to be warned against time and time again is disunity in the church. That's not the plan. And so when you peel back the curtain of the church, you will see people from every tribe and tongue and nation all united as one. United because the thing that bonds us is the blood of our Redeemer, Christ. And Paul's next brushstroke in in this wonderful portrait of the church are people from all sorts of backgrounds, freed by grace under the rule of King Jesus. Thirdly, finally, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for an inheritance. 
leading on from this unity theme, Paul says, verse 11, in Jesus we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, and I think he's talking about Jews like him, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, you Gentiles, were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, isn't that interesting? Just thinking about that. Paul says, yes, God chose you. In eternity past, God was the one who initiated it. He chose you. But they responded, didn't they? They they had a responsibility. They had a choice to make. You heard the message of truth and you responded. And so the idea of God's sovereign choice is not a hindrance to evangelism, but it fuels our evangelism, knowing that there's people out there whom God has chosen and we share the word with them in the hope that they will respond and hear the gospel of salvation. Look at verse 14. This is what happens. As soon as they heard the gospel, as soon as they believed it, as soon as you come to follow Jesus, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So you Christian who feels small, weak, struggling with life, struggling with conflict because you're a follower of Jesus. Do you know that the moment that you came to follow Jesus, even if you can't really pinpoint that moment, God sealed you with his Holy Spirit. The image is is kind of like that of a cattle brand that, that, that God's branded us, that, that God's declaring to everyone that these people belong to me. They're mine. They are my treasured possession. And I will protect them, and I will be with them no matter what. But it's kind of more than that as well, isn't it? Because, because having the Holy Spirit is having God himself with you, residing in you. And, and you know you have it. You know you have God's Spirit when you, when you hate your sin and you want to love Jesus. That's not normal, by the way. If, if, that, if that's you if, you, if you hate the fact that your sin offends Jesus and you really want to love Jesus, that is not the natural desire of a human being. That's the desire of God's Spirit, to love what He loves and to hate what He hates. And if you have God's Spirit, it's, it's, not, it's like a cattle brand, but it's, it's more like having the DNA of the God of the universe in your own DNA. It's like He's our Father and, and we're His children. God has given you His Spirit and no matter what, He will protect you. Again, think of, think of the Ephesian Christians facing conflict and hostility when people are, are, are inciting riots against you. That, that's not nice. But Paul's saying that God will protect you. He sealed you. That doesn't mean you won't face conflict. Jesus makes it clear. You will have to face many hardships and difficulties in order to enter his kingdom. In fact, if you're a Christian, you, you can be sure of one thing. You've got the, the worst, most terrifying enemy in the world, the devil himself. He is against you. People will fail you. You will hurt. You will suffer. You will sin. 
But what this does mean is amidst it all, there's one thing you can be absolutely certain of. You are totally secure in his love. When you go to bed tonight as a follower of Jesus, you will wake up tomorrow as a follower of Jesus. And that will never change. Never. Because the security of your salvation is not down to you. (laughs) It's down to the seal that God has placed. That it says, they're mine. They belong to me. And when God gets you, he keeps you. Because as Paul says here, the Holy Spirit is not just a seal, but he's a guarantee. A guarantee that, that you will be with Jesus. He's like the, the, the first installment of, of a payment. He's the down payment of, of eternity with Christ. The deposit to assure us that, that one day we will be free from sin, free from suffering, free from evil and death. And there's absolutely nothing that is going to stop us getting there. It's a guarantee. And we get, we get a taster of it now because the Holy Spirit's with us now. It, whenever we, we spend time together with God's people, on a Sunday. It's a little foretaste of of what's coming. Whenever we listen to God's Word or we walk in step with God's Spirit by obeying obeying God's Word, when we we celebrate the Lord's Supper, just little tasters of the, the guarantee that is to come. You see, in a world that is full of uncertainty and fear, if you were to peel back the curtain of the church, you see an army of people secure and safe, guaranteed to head towards that glorious inheritance. So that's it. That's who we are, adopted, redeemed, and sealed. We have skimmed the surface of an amazing reality. That's Paul's magnificent portrait of the church, God's masterpiece, See, even when you just skim the surface, every spiritual blessing, that makes sense now, doesn't it? Every spiritual blessing, that's what we have. And the important thing for us to leave on is, do you notice that there's just one, there's a phrase all throughout this that's repeated. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, through Christ, in Christ. Make no mistake, you may become, you may be here in St. Pete's for the first time, I don't know, um, Look, make no mistake, all, everyone sitting here, we're all messed up. We are messed up people. None of us here have it sorted. I promise you that. We're not special. We are really messed up. And if you actually saw our hearts, you probably would want nothing to do with us if we saw each other. But God knows. And he chose us. And he adopted us, and he redeemed us, and he sealed us, not to make much of us, but to make much of him. And I return to that phrase repeated in Ephesians because it's, the, it's so important as we, as we look to celebrate and remember the Lord's death. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. You see, when you see who you really are in Christ, that never, ever, ever will lead you to self-exaltation. It just leads you to want to praise his glory. We need to know these blessings, especially when we feel small or weak, especially when we feel marginalized or small. But we need it not just to make ourselves feel better, but so that no matter what happens, 
we will be able to praise his glory. For his glory is always worthy of praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great truths. Just hovering over the surface of the the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. It's amazing to think that, that we have this because we know we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We know that we're not even neutral with you. We know that we're sinners. That without Jesus, we have held you in contempt. That we have hurt you and rebelled against you. That we are wicked. And yet, because we have faith in Jesus, you have chosen to treat us like Jesus. Because we are in Jesus, we, we are confident and we can say with such confidence and certainty, because it's all about him, not us, we can say that we are your children, that you chose us to be your children before the foundations of the world. We can say that we have been set free, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We can say that we know what the plan of God is, that, that everything should be united under the, the kingly rule of Jesus. We can say with such assurance that we have been sealed by your Holy Spirit and heaven is not something that we wait for with a wishy-washy hope, but something we know is definitely going to happen. Father, give us the the ability to see the, the great spiritual blessings that we have. Whatever's going on in our lives, help us to meditate on the great truth that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing before we uh, 